Uh, we got a message this week from Don and Dalvani, uh, missionaries who uh, we've had a long time relationship with as a, a church. They have a niece, I believe it's pronounced Eliana, E-L-I-A-N-A, uh, who's having surgery tomorrow. And they didn't get into a lot of specifics in their message. They said it was an oncological surgery, so I assume it's related to cancer. Uh, but that's really all I know. But she's having that surgery tomorrow on Monday. And uh, they had asked if we could be praying for Ileana. Um, and so definitely important to lift her up in prayer. Um, also, uh, if you guys could be praying for, for Carrie, my Carrie, um, this week she's planning to travel to Alabama to visit her sister and our niece who was born in November, who uh, miraculously survived that just harrowing uh, childbirth. She didn't breathe for over 20 minutes, and so Carrie's planning to visit them this week, and if you've paid attention to the weather, we're getting some more nasty winter weather, and so Carrie's flight's scheduled for tomorrow. I'm not sure if that's going to happen tomorrow, and um, it's just, I know Carrie's stressed out about that because she wants to see her sister and nieces and nephew, and so if you could pray for her as well, and, and uh, just for everything to be on time, and for her to be able to, uh, be able to get down to them. No, she would appreciate that, and so would I. I think sometimes we, uh, we treat prayer like it's only for the, the life and death circumstances. And no, we can have a constant communion with the Lord and, and bringing to Him what's on our heart. And, uh, but yeah, John chapter 8 this morning. And we're actually finishing up chapter 8. And uh, I'm excited about this passage. It's one that I've... Uh, I was reading this passage a lot earlier in the year when we were in some other texts getting ready to get back into John, and so I feel like this is a, uh, become, has become a more and more familiar section for me. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me... You would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. 
I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I've heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. And he who has sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I have heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth... You do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. But I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. 
The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will not taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not, if I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that Jesus is the eternal I am. Lord, we pray today for this baby Cohen in the NICU and with Down syndrome. Lord, we pray for this child. We pray for his parents. Lord, we pray for the health of the baby. Lord, we pray for Ileana and the surgery that she has coming up tomorrow. Tomorrow, We pray for your blessings on the surgery, on the treatment that she has upcoming. Lord, we continue to pray for Marsha as she recovers from back surgery, Lord, and just the pain and the process of recuperation, Lord. We pray for her in all of that, and that she's able to get back home soon and just continue to pray for her recovery. As we also pray for the recovery of Jean Ryder after breaking her hip this past week. Lord, and for her as well, we pray for a speedy recovery and for Mark and Ruth as they'll be taking care of her. Lord, I also do pray for Carrie for, again, just for good weather. Um, it's been a long couple of weeks weather-wise for much of the country. And Lord, I just, uh, I pray for relief from that um, and just the dangers that can come with nasty winter weather. Lord, I, I pray for that. Lord, and we pray for our time as we study your word. Lord, we pray for next week's uh, video, movie that we're watching, Hope in the Holy Land. And Lord, pray for our time with Justin Crone and um, that this film, Lord, we pray that it can be a blessing to us, but also a blessing to others. Uh, Lord, we pray for our time in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. It's widely considered to be the greatest plot twist in movie-making history. The Empire Strikes Back. Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader are locked in an intense lightsaber battle. Luke's hand has been cut off by Darth's lightsaber. Darth Vader tries to persuade Luke into joining the dark side, lest he suffer a similar fate to Obi-Wan Kenobi. Luke has believed that Darth Vader killed his father. Spoiler alert, by the way. And in that climactic moment, Darth Vader tells him, I am your father. 
You see the anguish in Luke's face as he learns of this. This long passage I just finished reading, I would say is a passage that is ultimately all about fatherhood. And we see three fathers mentioned in this passage. God, Abraham, and the devil. Now, as I begin in this passage this morning, I want to make a a quick note. Most of my sermons usually have three points. The first few verses are the first point, the middle verses are the second point, and the final verses are the third point. That's usually how I do it. This sermon will be covering the flow of this passage and focusing on this theme of fatherhood throughout this narrative. And we'll also be looking at heavenly and worldly perspectives woven throughout this passage. And so it's not a typical three-point structure. It's more we're looking at the whole story and the themes of fatherhood and the heaven and the world. And with that, we'll jump right into this section today. Jesus begins in verse 12 by saying, I am the light of the world. And I keep pointing out that the I am statements are statements that are found Throughout the Gospel of John, don't have a slide for that one, apologize. The I am statements are statements that Jesus makes during his ministry where he uses the name that God uses to disclose himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, I am. Today's chapter begins and ends with two different I am statements that Jesus makes. And so Jesus has said he is the light of the world. And the Pharisees continue to oppose him in verse 13. You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And that's the beginning of the debate. Talked about this last week, so we won't belabor the point. But they're suggesting that they don't have sufficient evidence to believe in the claims of Jesus. And we see that Jesus does not submit to man-made demands. We see that it is Jesus who will call them into question. But this passage also points forward to the cross of Christ and his willingness to die for the very people who oppose him. Verse 16, Jesus talks about having been sent by the Father. And in verse 18, as Jesus has continued his response to the Pharisees, He again points to the fatherhood of God. Verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. The Pharisees respond with confusion in John 8, 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus has been speaking to them in heavenly terms. They respond with a worldly perspective. They ask to see Jesus' Father. Second part of verse 19, Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Again, they're focused on mere paternal lineage. Jesus' Father is in heaven, but they don't understand that. But Jesus adds the point that if the Pharisees truly knew the Father, they would also know the Son. And that idea will become more and more pronounced throughout this passage. Jesus makes God known. 
As John the Apostle says at the beginning of this gospel in chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so if you don't know Jesus, you can't truly know God. Or John chapter 5, 38, where Jesus has told the Pharisees, You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. The story continues. Verse 20, John reminds us that despite the Pharisees' plot against Jesus, no one has arrested him yet because his hour has not yet come. But then immediately in verse 21, Jesus points forward to his hour and the time of his death. John chapter 8, verse 21. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me. You will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is pointing forward to when he goes to be with his father. Jesus says, I am twice in this verse. In the Greek, those are not the same words that are used in the I am statements. I've made this point a couple of different times. There's more than one way to say I am in Greek. Uh, so I wouldn't over-theologize this verse. Jesus is talking about going to be with his father. And his point is that the Pharisees cannot go if they continue to reject Jesus and live and die in their sins. Jesus is getting at the heart of the gospel. Faith and belief in Jesus is what enables us to know God, to be forgiven of our sins, and to have an eternal hope. Again, Jesus is speaking in heavenly terms, and it again goes over the heads of the crowd. Some of the smartest people in the Jewish community don't understand what he's saying. Verse 22, So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And so Jesus has to continue explaining it to them. Verse 23. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Again, we continue to see this focus throughout the passage of the heavenly versus the worldly. He's talking about the Pharisees as being from below and from the world. Jesus is from above and not from the world. They're stuck in worldly thinking and therefore miss the heavenly aspect of what Jesus is saying. Now in this verse 23, twice more, Jesus says, I am. And once again, those are not the same wording as we find in his I am statements. But it is in verse 24. And I think that's for intentional emphasis. That he's giving a warning. And this is a warning that he'll give that is as true for every person in the world today. As it was for this crowd who heard Jesus almost 2,000 years ago. Verse 24, Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Again, here, I think Jesus is making a statement about his own divinity. 
Our sin brings death. Jesus is the one who gives life. He is our advocate before the Father. He lived the righteous life that we could not. And so he says that unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Again, the importance of the I am phrase is that it's the same phrase that God used when he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. Moses asked God for his name. and God refers to himself as I am. God is being in itself. And Jesus is in a dead world at the Feast of Booths, warning their moral and intellectual elite that unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Unless they believe that Jesus is the one who redeems us before the Father. Unless you believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Unless you believe that Jesus is Lord, you will die in your sins. What do you believe about Jesus? He came into the world to bring salvation, love, and grace. He came to restore our broken relationship with the Father. He came to redeem fallen humanity. And the Pharisees continue to fail to understand. Verse 26, Jesus tells them, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. Jesus continues to point to his father. Again, he's not just some guy saying this out of nowhere. His ministry is pointed to in the scriptures. He lives a perfect life. He displays signs which show his glory. And he is the witness of God. Verse 27 adds the comment. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. John adds that comment. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. These are the most important things that this crowd will ever hear. And because of their sin, their blindness, their refusal to accept the truth, and their failure to know the heart of the Old Testament, they miss what's right in front of them. They don't understand who Jesus is, and they don't understand who his Father is. Verse 28. So, they said, so Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Again, this passage talks about fatherhood and about the heavenly and worldly perspective. Jesus talks of being lifted up. He uses that phrase a few times in this gospel. And as we often see in the Gospel of John, Jesus often says things that have a double meaning. He doesn't say, when you have killed the Son of Man, or when you have crucified the Son of Man. He uses the phrase, when they have lifted up the Son of Man. The lifting up refers literally to being lifted up on the cross at his crucifixion. But he is also speaking of his ultimate lifting up 
and exaltation and glorification after his resurrection. The world intends the cross to be the site of Jesus' greatest humiliation, but it is ultimately the place of his exaltation. It is the cross and his death and resurrection, which is the ultimate confirmation of his identity, the ultimate example of Christ's role in the divine mission. And through the cross, many will believe. And in this passage, verse 30, says that as Jesus was saying these things, many in the crowd believed in him. And many more will believe in the eternal life that he promises through understanding his death and resurrection. And ultimately, the whole world will stand in judgment before Christ on the last day and acknowledge his lordship. But those who rejected him in life, for them it will be too late. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. But we must believe. Sinners coming to Christ, believing in the grace that he offers. The story continues. So far, Jesus has talked a lot about the fatherhood of God. In this next section, we begin to see more and more discussion on the Israelites and their view of Abraham as their spiritual father. In the middle of a section where people have widely reviled and rejected Jesus, he has a word for those who believe in him in the midst of all of the opposition. Verse 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus talks about abiding in his word. Keeping his word, applying his word, believing his word, walking in the truth of his word. His word is his teaching and message. Jesus says that true discipleship involves that. It's in true faith, which results in a life that is changed due to the power of the gospel. Jesus says that for this person, they will know the truth and that the truth will set them free. Ironically, that's a verse that is often taken out of context and misunderstood. The phrase, the truth will set you free, gets quoted as if that's true by itself in isolation. It's about knowing the truth about Jesus and living as his disciple, which is the truth that brings freedom. Without Christ, there is no real freedom. Our society has gone through a crisis in recent generations. Postmodernism brought with it the idea that we couldn't know what truth really was. My fear with the younger generation is a growing nihilism that questions if truth itself even exists. The problem with the world is not a lack of truth, but a lack of people knowing the truth. Jesus is the ultimate truth in a world which loves falsity. 
Also, it'll be important in this passage because freedom, where Jesus says the truth will set you free, freedom is contrasted with enslavement. Freedom is found in Christ. Slavery is found in sin. The Pharisees respond to Jesus in verse 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Two things are significant here. This is where they start to talk about the fatherhood of Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. And so they point to their lineage in contrast to what Jesus has said. Second, their response can seem almost unrelated. Jesus has talked about truth and how truth brings freedom. And that's referring to the truth and freedom which comes from knowing and believing in Jesus. As I keep saying, this passage has a heavenly and a worldly perspective to it. Jesus is talking about ultimate freedom in a spiritual sense. And the crowd responds by talking about freedom in a worldly sense. Specifically, they're talking about the period in which their Israelite forefathers were enslaved in Egypt. But that was centuries before this time. Many, many generations ago. Jesus is talking about spiritual slavery, slavery to sin. We see that in his response. They missed the point. They think that slavery doesn't apply to them because that was so many hundreds of years before. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone is a servant to something. You're either a servant of God. Serving God is where freedom is found. Or you're a servant to the flesh. You're a servant to the world. You're a servant to sin. And Jesus gives an illustration for his point beginning in verse 35. He points to himself as a son. As an heir. Referring to his father's kingdom. And the Pharisees were metaphorically in the house of God, in the kingdom of God. But the true inheritance belongs to the Son. It is the Son who could give someone standing, an inheritance. It's the Son who could give them their freedom. And Jesus directs his attention away from his metaphor when he says to the Pharisees in verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And this will again get back to the point that they do not truly know God. Jesus calls them the offspring of Abraham. That's true in the sense that they're Jewish. But they don't truly know the God whom Abraham knew. Verses 38 and 39, Jesus will refer to God as his father. And the crowd refers to Abraham as their father. I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. 
They think that they have special standing by virtue of their Jewish heritage. But that counts for nothing in their faithless lives that are cold to God and his truth. And the verse continues. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. To quote Leon Morris from his commentary of the Gospel of John, deeds count far more than ancestry. They might be Jewish. Jesus never disputes that fact. But they're not living as God's people. Again, they're rejecting the truth. They're plotting and will ultimately see the killing of Jesus, the Savior of the world. Verse 40. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. The Old Testament tells us that Abraham believed in God. When Abram was called to leave the land of Canaan, he went. When Abraham was called to sacrifice his son, he was willing. God didn't make him do that. But he was willing and trusted God to that point. Abraham responded to the word of God. The Israelites are trying to kill the word of God. Verse 41 is interesting. Jesus continues his thought to the Pharisees. You are doing the works your father did, they said to him. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. We will find out in a couple of verses who their real father is. But for now, we'll stay in the mystery that John has worked into this passage. The crowd responds to Jesus by trying to take a shot at his lineage. They'll call into question the legitimacy of Jesus' origin, suggesting that elements of his birth story were known to the crowd. And since they rejected God as Jesus' father, they reason that Jesus himself is illegitimate. But Jesus is undeterred. Verse 42, he cuts to the heart. I don't have a slide for this one. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Their hatred of Jesus is the greatest example of why they are not true children of God. Again, we have so many references to fatherhood in this passage. Jesus refers to God as his father. The crowd refers to Abraham as their father. And they question the legitimacy of Jesus' father. But in verse 44, Jesus tells them who their real father is. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's, your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? 
Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So he says that the devil is their father. Quite an accusation to make. But that's the state of the world. We're either children of God or the devil. We're either of the kingdom that is above or the one that is below. We are either of of light or of darkness, of good or of evil, of truth or of lies. The Pharisees might follow some outward rules, but in opposing God's anointed savior of the world, they're in league with the devil. They're opposing the very truth of God. It's that major of an issue. Again, our world likes to act like we can just sort of take or leave Jesus. Our world likes to think some nice things about Jesus, but undermines his exclusivity. We might appreciate that he's a savior, but we undermine that he's the only way. We might like some of his teachings about love, but don't so much like his teachings calling us to holiness. There are ultimately two ways. The Israelites were not truly sons of God here, nor sons of Abraham, but were sons of the devil. The Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, picks up this theme in his letter of 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And he'll continue that argument into verse 10 when he says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Here he uses the phrase, children of the devil. Continued sin in opposition to God and his truth, make one a child of the devil in the spiritual sense. Again, throughout this passage, it's pointing to heaven and to the ways of the world. Home stretch. Verse 48, the crowd lashes out. The Pharisees lash out at Jesus. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Once again, calling into question Jesus' legitimacy by calling him a Samaritan. Again, the Samaritans were a group who were half Jewish ethnically and largely hated. Perhaps it's also a dig at Jesus for his interaction he had with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And they suggest that it's Jesus who's actually demon-possessed. Jesus talks of how he honors his father. Verse 51, he again points to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. It was a great source of pride for the Jewish people that they had the scriptures, they had the law of God. But they don't follow it at heart. 
In Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, Jesus is having another run-in with the Pharisees when he quotes Isaiah and says to them, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I made like 35 slides for this one, missed a couple. It's easy to talk the talk. The people honored God with what they were saying, but not with their hearts and not with what they were believing. Actually, believing and knowing God is a different matter than just saying you believe. The Pharisees do not ultimately understand Jesus. Jesus is talking to them. They feel like they've gotten Jesus tripped up. Jesus has said in chapter 8, verse 51, that the one who believes in him will never taste death. And they try to use that statement against Jesus in verse 52. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? They don't understand what Jesus means when he talks about eternal life. They look back at Old Testament figures who are long dead and think that Jesus promising life to those who believe in him is absurd. They don't get it. The heavenly versus the worldly. Jesus promises eternal life with him in heaven. And in the Pharisees' eyes, even as great as Abraham was, he died. His followers died. And so they ask him in verse 53, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? Certainly it's very ironic. They ask Jesus if he's greater than Abraham and the prophets. And in their mind, the obvious answer is no. But the irony is that Jesus is greater. Verse 55, Jesus will tell them that they do not truly know Abraham. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. That's really a sad irony of this whole story. This people, this group of people who so strongly identify with Abraham... They're at a feast which calls to remembrance Israel's time wandering in the desert. They're in Jerusalem in the land itself that the Lord had promised to Abraham. And they're standing with the promised Savior of the world. Indeed, that is a day in which Abraham would have rejoiced. Seeing the fulfillment of God's promises. Seeing Abraham's ultimate offspring. The true son, the true Isaac to be sacrificed, the true lion of the tribe of Judah. And they miss all of it. 
And in verse 57, we see that they truly missed the point. Jesus has just profoundly talked about how Abraham would have loved to see this day, loved to see this ministry. And once again, all they can do is focus on what's in front of them. They point to Jesus' age. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have seen Abraham. And there we come to the climactic moment of the passage. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The passage ends abruptly. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That's where the scene ends. And it concludes Jesus' time at the Feast of Booths, chapters 7 and 8. In chapter 7, Jesus had delayed arriving at the feast because people were seeking to kill him. And now it's the final day of the feast, and they've picked up stones ready to kill him. Jesus' response where he says before, Abraham was, I am, as I said, is the climax of the story. It's the third of Jesus' I am statements. They had questioned Jesus in his comparison to Abraham by pointing to his youth. And Jesus tells them that he is before Abraham. Jesus is before him in time. He came before him. Abraham is finite. Jesus is eternal. And he's also before Abraham in imminence. Abraham was only a man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. But his suggestion to this crowd is blasphemous. Jesus, again, is making a claim that he is divine. The fact that the Pharisees pick up stones and are ready to stone him shows that they knew exactly what Jesus meant. Again, the statements make revelations about Jesus. This overarching section that we've covered this morning is bookended by two I am statements. Jesus is the light of the world, and it ends with him saying, before Abraham was, I am. And we have a couple of other minor instances throughout this passage where Jesus subtly keeps reminding them, I am. Jesus is God. At the end of this passage, the Pharisees continue to disbelieve. They continue to question him. And Jesus states his eternity. They have the light of the world and the eternal God of creation in their midst. And instead of falling down to worship him, they pick up rocks to try to stone him. And so at the Feast of Booths, about six months before his death, the passage ends with Jesus walking away. The light leaves the temple. In the next chapter, we'll see another individual interaction with Jesus and a man who was born blind. The light of the world gives him sight. And that man sees Jesus for who he is and believes in Jesus. What a beautiful contrast to this event. But how do you respond? How do you respond to the light? How do you respond to the truth? 
How do you respond to the great I am? Many want to ignore his light, want to disregard that he is the truth, want to deny the freedom that Jesus brings. But we must see Jesus for who he is, that he is the savior of the world. He is the only one who can restore us to God. He is the only one who can take away our sins. We cannot be our own saviors. And so we respond by believing in the great I am, God with us, believing in him and living for him to the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Son, Lord. We are sinful people. Without him, we would have no hope. Lord, but for him, we praise you for the grace that is freely given. And we believe in him. In Jesus' name, amen.